Lana Brown. Oh. <coughs> wow. That shows what state that we're in right now. <laughs> Out of practice. It's been a very long time, to be fair. Uh, Chris McLeish, here we are back with episode number 73. Is it? 73 it is. i've lost track i See, have no I idea i find that wild though because if we had if we had continued doing this weekly we'd be well into the hundreds by now but we're only I mean, 73 for sure, <laughs> life is just it doesn't like to allow us to record do you know what I mean? it doesn't because we have jobs and lives now when we first started this project we were very much without lives <laughs> true true my life was occasional walks and crafts was what was what I was doing when we started this. Pretty yep, much. pretty much. Mine also included consuming copious amounts of sugar. Because yeah, there's that too. That was there's my coping too. mechanism was just to eat all the cakes. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh excuse me. Am I boring yeah, I, you already? Um, no, I don't know why I'm so <laughs> knackered. I don't know why I'm so knackered. We've barely started. We're one minute, 40 seconds in and I'm already tired. Remember when we used to be able to record at like 11 at night and we'd be fine? I know. Here we are. I blame the fact I've been ill over Christmas. Yes. And I'm just kind of on the other side of it now, Mm -hmm. which is good. But also I blame just being bored. I was bored all day today because I had a headache. And it's never fun. I can empathise with and that. And I couldn't do much. Suffler. 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 <sighs> we're here and we're going to make it happen. And I'm very we're excited. We're here. I mean, this is, the first, this is the first time in a while. I mean, I will be honest. You have been a significantly better co-host and that you've had lots of storage prepared. And I haven't. So I'm <laughs> the one that's like... That's okay. No, I... Just whenever I've had a minute, I've sat down and done a bit of research. But then that's what I would do anyway exactly that's like i fair. read these articles anyhow so it, i just happen to copy and paste and then tweak when okay. i have some time there you go stunning that's what i need to do i need to start making it a habit again how have you believed in being i've been okay i've been muddling along we're seeing off pods hannah's been having a little bit of a battle with her anxiety but that is okay indeed these, these things are sent to try us in life and we are getting through it okay But I've been doing that by trying to battle it by doing things myself. So I don't just cuddle up in a ball under the covers of my bed in the house for 24 hours a day. Um, Which is also perfectly valid. That's a fine way to spend Which is also occasionally sometimes you need that. But sometimes your brain's nasty and tells you you need that when you really don't. So Yeah, true. um, So I've been doing good things. Went to Edinburgh on Monday. Um, what did you do in Edinburgh? I, I went for a walk, had a wander around Waterstones because I was looking for a book, which they did not have, but I will get to that in due course. Um, okay. And I walked up to Dean Cemetery for a little wander, Beautiful. which was all nice. And it had been snowing the night before, so there was a little dusting oh, nice. of snow all over the... How very uh, Victorian. It was rather lovely, and it was a lovely sunny morning as well. But as I was saying to you nice. off pod... Not many roads had been de-iced, and mm-hmm. Hannah nearly took a cut, tumble a couple of times. <laughs> well, you were just thinking you were missing the ice skating. I was. That's what I was thinking about. But I, oh, really? Like honestly, I really nearly went down a couple of times, and it was quite scary, especially because you know that Dean Cemetery is up quite a steep hill, or it's at the yes. top of a hill. And as I was coming, I had to take a kind of convoluted route to get there. 
and as I was walking around the cemetery, I was like, how, how am I going to uh, get back? Because I need to go all downhill <laughs> from mm-hmm. here. Uh, but I managed to work it out. I took a flatter route and walked on the side of the road that the sun had been on, so it was marginally less slippy. What else did I do? And I went to the burrow collection today. Yes, how was it? It was lovely. Have you been yet since it reopened? I have not. McLeish. I have not been. I know. Well, I'm a busy bee. You are a busy bee. We'll need to go I've because got it's no good. no time to ever do anything. And it's free because for my Christmas, I got... So... For anyone that doesn't know, but the Burrow Collection, which is the Museum in Glasgow, reopened last year after about a six-year refurb. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it was only supposed to be about three, but then the pandemic like delayed it. Um, Put a stopper on some things. It did. So it eventually opened next year, and it's basically the collection of, well, a very rich man and his wife that collected all these objects and then gifted it to Glasgow, the city, for people to go and see. Um, and for my Christmas, there had been a new biography about Sir William Burrell, the collector, had been published. So I read that, and it was so fascinating. And because I okay. talked about him as like a person, and it's quite a weird collection. There's thing from there's things that go from like Ming Dynasty vases to like armory from like the medieval period to like Dega paintings from the Victorian period. <laughs> there's kind of like, okay. there's no in between. He liked what he liked. He had a good eye for it. But reading his, the book about him, it just contextualized everything. And I was like, ah, I get it. Okay. That's why he picked that up and this sort of thing and why the collection is the way, where it is and the way it is, is all like down to his like wishes and stuff. So I was like, I probably should go and see it through like a new, more informed lens now. Um, mm-hmm. so that was good that was very interesting so would recommend to a friend it's free so um, I had a wander around there myself and took myself for a wee cup of tea lovely a wee That's cup of tea nice. so it's a very civilised day to day but um, yeah. how's it about yourself well it's been a very busy old time Mm-hmm. I just got back from London on Friday because Matt and I went down to see our friend Rosie in the National Theatre's Hex. Which yes, was of course. She's lording it up at the Royal Marfell. National Theatre. She blinking is. And it's, um, it's closed now. The show's finished now, but it was mm-hmm. marvellous. It mm-hmm. was filmed for NT Live, so it oh, will hopefully nice. be in the eyeballs of the nation soon. But we... Um, when the hex was originally first done, it wasn't received particularly well, but they've obviously been working on it mm-hmm. um, the past couple of years. And uh, we thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, that's good. We had a lot of people who were telling us, oh, you never know, it wasn't great the first time. So, yeah, out. I had a lot of but, people, I've read a lot of reviews saying, I think a lot of people just didn't quite get it. I think it's a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, having conversations with some people that did see it the first time around, some of the changes they've made have contextualized some of the plot. Okay. Or streamlined the plot slightly, which is cracking. I think it's l- largely down to some song changes and some direct- direction okay. changes. So um, we thoroughly enjoyed it. The music is cracking. It's very Celtic. And so, of course, Ooh. we loved it. And Rosie was fabulous, mm-hmm. which is not a surprise. That's not a surprise at all. Um, 
but we thoroughly enjoyed it and we also went to see punch drunk again because really that's not saw, like you two i know surprise <laughs> so we saw burnt city in previews last year and so it's pretty much a year since we were down there seeing the previews and we wanted to see what they've done to to change things up or whatever and we thoroughly enjoyed obviously it's a choose your own adventure kind of, of course, immersive yes. experience so you can literally see the, a different show every single time you go but we saw different shows from the first two times we went but also the stuff that they'd added in the things that they had tweaked just made everything make much more sense mm-hmm. and we loved it thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed we stayed with some friends as well so it was a really nice affordable trip <laughs> which was important to us always helpful when it helps the bank account yeah so we really really enjoyed ourselves and we got back on friday and yeah we've just been having quite a nice time we were both ill just before we went as well so Mm. it was nice to go and actually have a nice time because we weren't sure how it was going to be for a hot second there but no that's yeah it was marvelous yeah i feel like that was that's a common thing a lot of people i know particularly in work were all struck down with like a non-COVID, it was like a non-COVID virus, but I think because we haven't had colds for two years because we're all wearing masks and all that is like a truck. Yeah, they were, they were beasts. Um, well, we, as I was telling you just off pod, mm. my mum and I both caught something at the same time. And I do wonder if, it, if I had the flu or not, because my mum's was a full-blown flu mm-hmm. and was in hospital for um, four or five days. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Either I just had a, a flu that didn't feel too fluy, or I did just have a cold, but she yeah. was unfortunate. And yeah, you're right. You're so right. There's just so many things going around. Everyone's, everyone's on the brink of, uh, I was going to say death, but that's a bit morbid. That's a bit harsh. <laughs> I would hope On not. the brink of being just really rough. Really run down. That is, yeah. that is what we are. Well, I have a question for you. Prior to the hat question, I have an extra question. Yes. Do you know whose birthday it is today? Now, today is the 19th of January. It is. No, I don't. Okay. I was going to give you a clue, but the clue I was going to give you does not narrow it down. Today is the birthday of Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. Oh! Who is obviously one of the most famous Gothic writers that ever did exist. And he himself looked like a Gothic character. He did. Um, but this actually leads me to a point. This is just me trying to do like a fancy segue. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Rather than me just plainly going, have you watched The Pale Blue Eye on Netflix? I have not yet. Have you seen the trailer for it? I have not yet. But I've seen <laughs> pictures and I read a review. Okay, that's fine. Um, yeah. I cannot recommend this film enough. Um, okay for those of you that don't know the pale blue eye is based on a book so when i was saying off pod there that was the book i was looking for in waterstones but they didn't have it because i think Ah. everyone's bought it basically um because of this film so it's basically a murder mystery set in the 1830s in in new york state it follows this veteran constable who's sent to a um what do you call that? Like a soul? What do you call like a soldier's training place? Do you know what I mean? Uh, camp. 
aye, whatever. Yeah, uh, that there is a word for uh, it. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know either. He's sent to this camp, and one of the recruits that helps him solve this apparent murder is um, Edgar Allan Poe, which is partially based in truth because he did train as a soldier. Might not have solved a murder, but here we are. Christian Bale is in it, but the actor that plays Edgar Allan Poe is an actor called Harry Melling, who is perhaps best known to the world as the who was the actor that played Dudley Dursley in the Harry Potter films. Right? That's right. Um, but McLeish, oh my god, the performance he gives as Poe is possibly one of the best I've ever seen. Really? It was incredible. Don't get me wrong, the film is great, but it does, towards the end, it does go just a little bit police procedural and it gets a little bit boring. But Harry Melling okay. as Edgar Allan Poe, I cannot rave about enough. Just, oh my God, that, well, I just can't. I, I am very keen for it, but Matt and I not that long ago watched another film that he was in. What was it called? The Devil something something? It has Tom, Tom Holland in it. Oh. It's a very strange film. Richard Pattinson's in it. Richard a whole Pattinson. range of folk. Who's that? Rob, did I say Richard? Yeah, you did. <laughs> is that I his, meant Robert. Is that his twin? Uh, yeah, it must be. It must be because he looked very like him. <laughs> very very like, like him. him. Oh, funny that. Uh, Robert Pattinson. That's the one. And he was in it. And... Uh, performances all round were excellent. Terrible film, but excellent performances in a <laughs> uh-huh. terrible film. Yeah, we I we were keen for it because Matt really likes Tom Holland. I do too, mm-hmm. and we were very keen for it. And I very rarely like to give up on things, but I clocked out of that film quite early on. Fair, sometimes it happens. But I continued being in the room and trying my best to watch it. But at the end of it, I was like, that was a waste of my life. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it feels like that. <laughs> Yeah, so I do apologise, Tom, but it wasn't the one. No. But um, your man was in it, and it was yeah. he was excellent, very because good. Because I didn't know, because I'm just, I don't follow these things, I didn't know he'd gone on to like continue being an actor, because quite a lot of these child actors don't, quite frankly. Yes, but um, very true. When I saw the trailer, I was like, is that who I think it is? And also, Edgar Allan Poe is just a, he was quite a weird person, anyway so a very intriguing very tricky part to play but afterwards i was like i need to find someone else who's watched this film just so i can talk about it i'll report back i I promise i will go and watch it for the next um, episode you need to watch it so we can talk about it i will well i also might there was another story actually involving edgar Allan poe that i wanted to tell so maybe i could do a combo oh that would be a good idea if i'm keeping this in the podcast then that is a it's a verbal contract yeah you have to do it now you can't not so if people listen to this and i don't do this next time we record you have the right to sue me that's great him not me him yeah not not, not hannah just me (laughs) just me trixie and finn are not complicit either they're not complicit either exactly you like you have to watch it because He's just so good. He's just he's just so good because the only other film that I've seen where Edgar Allan Poe was portrayed was is it the 
Raven? I mean, that would make sense. I think so. I can't remember if that's the name of it, but I think it was John Cusack that played him, and I was a bit like, mm. Mm. Oh, I think I remember John Cusack doing something like that. Yeah, without it was like Alfie was in it as well. My feeling on John Cusack is that it's a shame because his sister is just so cracking. Oh, that's I would agree with that. Because <laughs> I watch John Cusack and things, and I'm like, ah, you're good, but you're no Joan. Literally. Also, the audacity of their parents giving them those, those names. Come on. Yeah, John and Joan. Yeah. Come on. Change more than one <laughs> consonant, please. Yeah, for anyone looking for like a proper gothic, also it makes you cold because it's set in the winter and obviously it was 1830s, so no electricity, so it was dark yes. all the time. But um, yeah, it's Which just... Which is kind of it, the life that I want to live. There you go. There you go. You'd I like enjoy the dark. That. I like the cold. <laughs> I'd be so happy. You would have enjoyed knocking about with Edgar Allan Poe in the dark. <clears throat> knocking about with our knees knocking about. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's nice. Wow. Let's just fire into questions. Let's to keep kick. things basic and true basic to the wee bit gothic brand. Keep it basic and true. Uh, we often adhere to one of those two things. I'll let you decide which one it is. <laughs> it's, that is, well, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So here's a question for you. Since this marks your New Year's episode, do you have any resolutions or goals for 2023? Also, saying 2023 makes me want to vomit. Yeah, because 2012 just happened. 2012 just happened. Oh my God. So just to go into this, I just watched a TikTok because I'm really 16 years old um, about someone asking a child that was born in 2017. That just happened. And it was like a fully grown child. Ill, um, how if they were to pretend how they answer a phone, how they would do it, and they do like a. It was like this. that, and then well, oh, it's just it's crazy, and then they go to this little girl like show us how you'd take a photo, and then she like mimics holding a phone. Oh my days! And then like does a selfie thing, and I'm like, I hate this. <laughs> That's grim. I hate That's them. absolutely grim. Like, in my brain, like, I've not left 2021 yet. Let alone no, I know. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, 2015, 2016, genuinely feel like they only oh, just happened. I don't like I was it. talking to, we had pals over the other night, and somebody was talking about how they finished high school in 2012. No, they started high school in 2012. Ew. And I was like, how dare you? I finished high school in 2009. 20, like, oh, 2009, that's the one. I started uni 10 years ago this year. Oh, don't even think about when you started high school, by the way. No, I'm not. Because it will make me want to cry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it is disgusting. Right. I don't like it. But anyway, well, do you have any goals or ambitions for this year? My plan... I don't, as a general rule, don't really do resolutions as such. Okay. I do like, I've always tried to toy with the idea of learning a new skill every mm-hmm. year. Practical. Um, or trying to kind of improve at something. I do try to do that. Yeah, I think this year I want to be really, really on it with the acting stuff because I've been mm-hmm. so close to quitting so many times this past couple of years because it's just exhausting. Yeah. Um. Uh, how hard it is and uh, 
I want to try and improve at networking. I hate networking because I think there's nothing worse than trying to suck up to someone. That's the and at the same I time, the industry. <laughs> it's just impossible. <laughs> it just I'm not the kind of personality that can go up to someone and feign interest. I have a genuine interest in these people, but these folk will always just think they're just after a job. And yeah, I'm not big and I'm not good awful. enough at bumming myself up. Yeah. So I'm, and I don't like going up to someone and doing that. But I'm going to try my best to attend more opening nights of things, Lovely. speaking to the right people, all that kind of stuff, contacting folk constantly. I just want to be a little bit more on top of that mm-hmm. because I really want 2023 to be a good year for acting. Yep. Otherwise, I'm going to really struggle to keep it going. Yep. And I don't feel like I have much else to fall back on that I would enjoy half no, as much that's as acting. Fair. But it's hard. It's really hard. So we'll see. Yep. That's a good one. I think that's a good, nice, practical one to have. I thank you. And what about yourself? Um, so I have got a little list of things going in my diary this year. So one of the main ones is to get my driver's license. That's a big one. Yes. Um, I can see it quite, happening. Thank you very much. I'm feeling quite a lot of pressure. I think I'm unfairly putting a lot of pressure on myself um, because driving is quite, even though I'm like turning 28 this year, like driving is quite a scary grown up concept to me still. We're hoping to get that done. And I'm also hoping this year to read at least 23 books in the year of 2023. Nice. I yeah. thought that Oh, be... that's, that's clever. I initially Thank thought you. 23, what a wild number, but that makes sense. There you go. Because last year I managed to read 15, which was a lot because good. I used to love reading. Like I was that kind of kid that had like a book everywhere and just really fell away from it when like I got old. Um... Mm-hmm. So last year I kind of forced myself to get back into it and I did enjoy it. And this year I was like, no, I'm actually going to like, instead of sitting staring at social media, which just makes me more scared and low mood, I will like, <laughs> I'll read a book instead. So that's nicer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have managed to read three so far. Well done. It's Thank only the you. 19th of January. Exactly. So I finished off the one that we were talking about earlier on, which is The Strings of Murder. Mm-hmm. By Oscar de Muriel, I rec- highly recommend. Finished William Burroughs' biography. And I also read a book called The Patient's Eyes. And this is a book series that I didn't know actually existed. And you know, McLeish, that this is a book series about Joseph Bell and Arthur Conan Doyle. It's a book written for us. We were, th- we were the Literally. entire <laughs> Literally. Well, do you feel ready to start firing into the, story, the first stories of the year? I absolutely do. Well, McLeish, this week I am continuing our little mini horror icon series. Ooh! So thus far, we have had the legendary Anne Rice of Interview with the Vampire fame. And we've also had James Whale, the LGBTQ icon and film director of Frankenstein fame. So today I'm going to be continuing with another famous person in the artistic horror world so jennifer coolidge oh if only do you think we could get away with doing a story about her (laughs) she wore black at the golden globes that's enough she did her behavior was also quite iconic at the golden globes let's not lie here let's not lie here um so this is actually marginally pertinent to what we were talking about with books so here we are if there's one thing that we are a fan of on this podcast it's that of ghost stories 
There's nothing like hearing a tale that has you peering over your shoulder and reluctantly turning off the lights. One of the masters of the ghost story still has readers quaking in their shoes with images of haunted engravings, possessed books, and to paraphrase one of his most famous quotes, faces of crumpled linen. Let's talk about the horror icon that is M.R. James. Yes, you've done one of his tales on our I did. pod. Yes, I did yeah. a couple of years ago now, which is disgusting. That feels like that just happened. Uh, yes, it did. Oh, wait, no, will that not be three years ago? Was that not 2020? Surely not. Did we not start this in 21? No, or was this 2020? This 2020. It was the end of 2020. Oh, God. Time is but a construct. It's <laughs> <laughs> time. So, Montague Rhodes James, side note, one of the best names in existence. Come on now. Yes. You can't have that name and not write ghost stories. Come on now. <laughs> That's, so Montague, um, what was his R? Montague Rhodes James. Rhodes James. Isn't that like, F, like, that is a gothic name in itself. It's wild. Um, I want to live uh, on Montague Rhodes. <laughs> I want to live on that street. I want to live on that street. You want to stay there. Um, yeah. So he was born on the 1st of August, 1862 in Kent in England. Marvellous. Yes. Um, his father was a clergyman and James's elder brother would follow in their father's footsteps as he would actually go on to become an archdeacon. Fair enough. Suit yourself. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So from 1876 to 1882, James was educated at Eton College. Fancy pants. Yes. Uh, before enrolling as an undergraduate at King's College, Cambridge. He... Come on. He just wanted okay, lots of letters after no, his he... name. <laughs> yes, he was from a certain class at the time. He yeah, was very okay. much from, from um, high up circles. I'll try not to judge. I know, I know it's hard not to. Um, yeah. So James, despite being perhaps best known in literary circles, was and is a well-respected scholar in his field. I couldn't actually find anywhere what he studied at Cambridge. I think it was classics. Sounds about right. Yeah, because he was like into like and like, he was like, a kind of expert on like ant antiquarian like subjects. So I'm presuming it was classics. I couldn't find it yeah. anywhere. If anyone knows, drop us a message. <laughs> that because, I mean that kind of thing would make sense, but also they've got crack class uh, cracking stories. Well, exactly. So like the ancient stories that you'd study in classics. Yeah. So Google wouldn't tell me. So I think it. I'm going with that. Anyway. Working as a medievalist scholar, James's work led to the excavations in the ruins of the Abbey at Bury St Edmunds in West, Sussex, eh, West Suffolk. And in 1902, this work led to the discovery of the graves of 12th century abbots, the site of which was lost during the dissolution of the monasteries. There you go. I see. There you well, go. Good, he found good finding them. some old monks chilling in the ground. Uh, so James was also responsible for the cataloging uh, for cataloging the manuscript libraries of the University of Cambridge, which is a job I wouldn't mind myself. <laughs> Sounds very nice, working with lots of cool things, um, as well as working as a translator on many antiquarian works. James is known to have performed in a staging of Aristophanes' The Birds, which is an ancient Greek comedy first performed in four one four BC. 
I love a bit of ancient Greek comedy. Who doesn't love a bit of ancient Greek theatre? Have you ever listened, listened, have you ever read Lysistrata? I have, because in my second year of uni, I had to do a, what would you call, like, a sort of performance piece based on Lysistrata, would you believe? I I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to perform anything inspired by that, because it's a wild, wild play. Oh, it's a crazy old time. (laughs) Kinky. Yeah. The lion and the cheese grater? Excuse me. Mm -hmm. What is that? Yeah. Um, it's it's a crazy old time but for all being ancient Greek theatre there's good badass female characters in it what more can you ask for I love the play probably more badass than modern female a lot of modern female characters (laughs) yeah I wonder what a modern day Lysistrata would look like a modern day adaptation of that play I'd be very intrigued because I think the sexual politics would be similar but different. And I would be intrigued to see how that would work. I'm thinking setting it in a political house, a government. Yes. Interesting. I might get on that. I would get on that. I would get on that. There you go. Although I I can't write anything political because it would all sound like layman's stuff. So maybe if I set (laughs) it in somewhere that wasn't a a a parliament, I'd be fine. Yeah. But... That sounds like a good setting for it. I would agree with that. I would agree. Get on okay. that, McLeish. Okay. Get that sorted. 23. Here we go. Here we go. So, in fact, it is James's acting talents that lent themselves well to the reading of ghost stories. So let's settle in and discover just what made James's stories tick. So, in A Warning to the Curious, which was published in 1925, James writes, and I quote... Two ingredients most valuable in the concocting of a ghost story are the atmosphere and the nicely managed crescendo. Let us then be introduced to the actors in a placid way. Let us see them going about their ordinary business, undisturbed by forebodings, pleased with their surroundings, and into this calm environment, let the ominous thing put out its head unobtrusively at first and then more insistently until it holds the stage. Mm. So, unlike some ghost stories that rely on the art of the jump scare, which is a rather difficult element to master in itself, um, James instead leaves his readers with a sense of unease. So there are three elements to a Jamesian tale. Firstly, some characterful setting, generally somewhere a little quirky with a general charm. So typically it's like a village or a museum or a seaside town, or somewhere like that. Um, Secondly, our protagonist is a quiet, often naive gentleman scholar. Typically, it's someone that works with historical objects, or works in a university. So, basically, it's a bit like a James (laughs) self-insert. Yeah, it sounds semi-autobiographical. Kind of. Um, and thirdly, there is the discovery of an unusual antiquarian object that, of course, is the cause to bring forth the supernatural. Such objects in James's stories include a book in the Tractic Middith, a mezzotint in the mezzotint, and a whistle in Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. The supernatural pervades the protagonist's life slowly, imperceptibly, until it makes itself known, normally leaving the protagonist a quivering wreck or, in some cases, not living at all. 
They dark. I mean, they dark they stories. Dark. They are. <laughs> they they dark. Um, we have all in our time, have we not, dreamt of running? Our feet racing beneath us, although we seem to travel nowhere. Glimpsing over our shoulder, we observe our pursuer, whom seems to move at more unnatural rate as we do. So we've all definitely had those dreams where mm-hmm. you're in your dream and you're trying to run away and get away from something. But no matter how far you seem to run, they always just seem to be there over your shoulder. And yep. this is very much an element that is quite prevalent in James's uh, ghost stories. It is very much a sort of look over your shoulder type of thing, more than a sort of physically jumping out your skin. A literary jump scare would be hard to achieve. Exactly. Um, exactly. Beyond like winding up an elastic band and sticking it in some of the pages. Hey, so that that's a good open, idea, by the way. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little pouch in the middle of the book you have to open and then it's like flies are popping out. Yeah, I love that. Um, Let's make it happen. So... <laughs> if, we, if we ever write a book, that's going to be in the book. That's going to be in the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Watch out, people. There's going to be a hidden elastic band somewhere in the pages. <laughs> somewhere in the pages. Better watch out for it. So James says of the malevolent spirits that haunt his tales, and I quote, Another requisite, in my opinion, is that the ghost should be malevolent or odious. Amiable and helpful apparitions are all very well in fairy tales or in local legends, but I have no use for them in a fictitious ghost story. So basically, rather than having like the ghosts being like doing a good thing, like I'm here to warn you about something or anything like that, it's basically the ghost like, I'm going to get you. <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in simple terms. So James's stories were first published in Ghost Stories of an Antiquity in 1904, which was a compilation of eight tales. But this is actually not the first time that they had been told. James, whilst at Cambridge, was famed for entertaining his colleagues and students with these ghost stories normally at Christmas. All would gather round the author, lit by candlelight, as he regaled tales of self-unlocking tomb padlocks in Count Magnus, or, as in the case of Lost Hearts, children who'd had their hearts carved from their still-living bodies. Just a classic Christmas tale. Just a classic. That's what you all want to hear. (laughs) Yes. Gathered around at Christmas. It's just, like, it's just great. Like, who needs, like, Narnia or the Grinch when you can have that? A hundred percent. That's all I want. Massacred children. Literally... Killing children and taking out their still-beating hearts. It's great. The reference to the padlock unlocking itself, was that a reference to the ghost story that was on Christmas TV this year? It was indeed. Did you watch it? I did. Did I you? I did. <gasps> oh my God, you'll need to go and watch all the rest of them though. <laughs> I know. It was just a short wee half hour. And it it was, was. Fabulous. Oh my god, yeah. brilliant. I talk a teeny, teeny, tiny little bit about them at the end of the story, so we'll get there. Okay. Um, so, M.R. James, famed ghost story writer, um, I would say that's probably what he's known for more than his scholarly work. Um, but when you look at his own views on the supernatural, you could say that they're generally kind of ambiguous as to okay. uh, what they are. So, of course, like quite a lot of people who end up working within sort of horror or gothic genre 
came from a religious family. There seems to be quite a lot of that, that if you come from a hyper-religious family, you end up kind of like <laughs> becoming interested in the occult or the sort of supernatural or something like that. Don't know what the link is there. Obviously, his father and elder brother were quite high up in that area, and he existed within the method and order of academia. So he came from a family with a strong belief system, but also he came from a world where everything was about fact and order, because that's what academia is. Um, so on the subject, uh, James actually wrote, uh, and I quote, I answered that I am prepared to consider evidence and accept if it satisfies me. So basically, he was like, I suppose, an open sceptic. He wasn't saying it wasn't real, but he was like, I'd need to see proof before mm -hmm. like, making a decision. So, that's fair enough. It should be noted, however, given that he is a Victorian gentleman, uh, that M.R. James was undoubtedly a man of his time. He, like many others, was against the awarding of degrees to women from university. Which is very annoying, because we have had historical allies <laughs> mentioned on this point. It's yeah. true, they do exist. They do exist. Um... Um, so it is marginally frustrating when you get someone who was kind of groundbreaking in their field and then realised that, no, they were very much happy with society in the way that they, they were. And despite being such a master in literature... James was not a fan of contemporary works by writers such as Aldous Huxley, who did Brave New World and that sort of stuff, and also James Joyce as well. Um, in fact, a friend considered him to be, quote, against modernity and progress. So He would be fuming if he could see that we have touchscreen phones. I know, right? We're not still using parchment and ink. <laughs> He'd be so mad. He'd be so angry with us. He'd be turning in his grave if he knew that he was featuring on a podcast. I know, right? He'd be like, what is this madness? It's, yeah. it's so true. He's going to unlock the padlock of his own grave and come for us. Let's really hope he doesn't. <laughs> if you're wanting anything to help with it, kind of settling anxieties and things, just think yeah, about exactly. M.R. James yeah, coming for you. That's, that's really what I need to think about is him. Yeah. Standing at the foot of my bed. Thanks for that, McLeish. Yeah. Don't worry. He's just bones. He's, uh, that's not helping. <laughs> Within certain circles, however, there has been speculation regarding James's sexuality. <gasps> oh, who's modern now? Yeah. So James did not marry in his lifetime, and contemporaries have actually cited whether perceived close, quote unquote, relationships were indeed something more. So James was quite famously um, a bachelor, did not marry, by contemporary accounts, didn't really seem to show interest in marrying or like pursuing a relationship with a woman. Of course, you could be reading into nothing, but there has been some more contemporary claims that maybe perhaps he was closeted. There's no actual like evidence to state yeah. that. It's more so spec it's more speculation because of these perceived close friendships that he had, which I suppose right. back in the late eighteen eighties, early nineteen hundreds, like could they could have easily been something more because that's not something you would yeah. do public in that time. Yeah, totally, totally. I'm, I'm like, I want someone to find a letter or something. 
in the archives. Letter and a floorboard or something. Yeah, exactly. So um, it was on a documentary that was made a few years ago now. It was a good few years ago now. Um, I think it was a someone I think he that knew him at Eton in his later years, I think. Sort of basically, or their parent or something had been to Eton with them, I can't quite remember, had basically said that um, that, that was kind of unspoken, that everyone kind of just sort of presumed that was, that was the case. So, so M.R. James died on the 12th of June 1936 in Eton. Um, he had assumed the role of Provost of Eton College in 1918. So he left the university and he went back to basically be... I suppose it was kind of like one of the people that ran Eton College, I think, is kind of what he did. So James's stories have transcended their original intention of student entertainment, having been frequently adapted for TV. Amongst the most famous include an annual BBC series titled A Ghost Story for Christmas, producing five of James's stories from 1971 to 1975. This includes one of the most infamous adaptations of Whistle and I'll Come to You, directed by noted theatre and opera director Jonathan Miller. Hmm. Which is quite cool. Quite cool. He's very famous in opera circles, so I quite enjoy that fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, and then in- he's pr- he probably got into it because ghosts famously go, Ooh, which is quite operatic. That is true. The ghosts are very operatic in themselves. So Yeah. So he felt drawn to that. That is very true. Um, in the early 2000s, the BBC revived this tradition with a short series featuring the late Sir Christopher Lee reading James's stories in character as the author. Very nice. Yeah. And perhaps third time lucky, the BBC again revived the ghost story for Christmas tradition <laughs> in 2005 with an adaptation of story A View from a Hill. And then an adapted version of Whistle featuring Sir John Hart was broadcast on Christmas Eve in 2010. I would say Whistle and I'll Come to You, my lad, is probably James's most famous. And they really yeah. buggered it up. They really messed up this adaptation. I did not like it at oh, really? all. They, uh, they really changed it. And it just upset me because the original is really quite creepy. And yeah. It's had, I, I, I'm all for like adapting and changing if it adds something and I personally just didn't feel like it added anything which is a bit upsetting because Sir John Hart yeah. was a legend so this tradition has found itself in safe hands however as since 2013 actor and writer Mark Gatiss has been at the helm of these adaptations serving as both writer and director. His adaptations include The Tractate Midith in 2013, Martin's Close in 2019, The Tent in 2021, and Count Magnus in 2022. So, I have to say, if I recommend one, I recommend The Tent, which was on two years ago now. I think it's on iPlayer, I want to say. Okay. But it's really good. Rory Kinnear's in it, and I'm a big Rory Kinnear fan. I do like um, Rory Kinnear. But... It was on, I remember watching it on Christmas Eve night when it was broadcast. And it was myself and my mum and my brother. And we like turned off all the lights and we just had the candles on. And McLeish, see when I went to bed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So at that time, so it's basically, to cut a long story short, it's about this guy who buys a mezzo tin and every single time he looks at it, it changes. And then Ooh. there ends up being a figure in the print that wasn't there. And every time he looks back, 
it's moved it's very creepy um okay but at that time i didn't have bedside lamps in my room <laughs> oh so, mm-hmm. so, so there was a trepidatious journey from light switch to bed there was so um when i got in i like pulled in my covers and everything and i did that childish thing of i turned off my light and i ran and leaped <laughs> into my bed in case anything grabbed my ankles from underneath it yeah the classic light, squ- so, light switch scuttle yeah so they did well in 2021 that's all i'm saying <laughs> that okay. one. they achieved the aim. and what was nice a lot of people on twitter were saying the same thing so i wasn't alone alone in that so Gatiss also hosted a 2013 documentary entitled mr james ghostwriter exploring james's life and the influences behind his works it's available on YouTube, I'm just saying. Okay. Um, definitely worth a watch. It does sort of contextualise the stories and where he got his ideas from and also continues this kind of discourse on James's private life yeah. um, as well. That's where the kind of, uh, the notion of him potentially have being uh, closeted kind of comes from. Um, so mm-hmm. James's stories continue to creep under the skin of his readers perhaps leaving us all reluctant to pick up unusual objects in charity shops. Of his Heyman writing, James writes, and I quote, If any of my stories succeed in causing their reader to feel pleasantly uncomfortable when walking alone a solitary road at nightfall or sitting over a dying fire in the small hours, my purpose in writing them will have been attained. And that is our third horror icon, Mr. M.R. James. Lovely. I didn't know much about Mr. James apart from I've read a couple of his stories. Couldn't tell you which ones. But I've read a couple. Um, well, that's good. And you've watched one now as well, so that's a good I start. Have. Which was what was it called again? Was it something Sweden? Count Magnus. Magnus. Count Magnus. That sounds about right. Why do I think the word Sweden was in the title? I don't know, but was it not set in Sweden? That's maybe it. That's maybe what did it. That's possibly it, yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, no, I enjoyed it, and it was um, Jason Watkins. Ah, yes, 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 yes. He, uh, he was the main character in it, and he is very good in everything I've seen him do. He is very good. He is very, very good at what he does. I agree. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think Edward James is on my mind purely because I watched the One Act Christmas again, and I was like, he's actually, it's quite interesting to talk about how his stories are like structured because they are they are just literally short stories like they're not he's never wrote novels yeah. or anything like that it's yeah. just all little tiny ghost stories but that these ghost stories have kind of like transcended what they originally were done for it was done to like provide entertainment for students and colleagues like at christmas yeah. whilst he was at cambridge um but how it's also kept that tradition going of ghost stories at christmas because i think that's always such a fascinating concept is that i suppose you could kind of say charles dickens kind of like <laughs> started yeah, off the mark with that tradition yeah because he thought you christmas want a, carol. a ghost at christmas i'll give you three yeah literally well four but there's four, four ghosts four technically um yeah so you can see he started that and it is very strange how we continue that tradition at Christmas, which is typically a time of like, it's supposed to be like joy and happiness and stuff like that. 
but people still like to have the wit scared out of them by reading some M.R. James. There's probably something in the fact that people that the ghost stories maybe have slightly more impact at Christmas because you are in a state of joy and fun mm-hmm. and you're, everything you do at Christmas time is to be joyful, is to kind of bring a bit of fun into your yeah. life. No, I would absolutely agree with that because it is very, very... I just find it really, really interesting that there, that there is something... I don't know what it is about... There is something kind of like ghosty and... I don't know. It's weird. It's just it's weird that we like continue to do that. But um, but yeah. Well, it's cold and dark and. Well, yeah, exactly. The, the atmosphere at Christmas time is perfect. It, for a it lends story. itself to it. So yeah. I think uh, that was why it was just there, and I was like, oh, we haven't done a horror icon for a wee while, so I thought I would slot that one in there. Bring um, it back. Nice. Yeah, basically. But yeah, um, highly recommend that you watch the the other adaptations if you enjoyed the one that was on there because they are they are they are very good and they are quite classic because there's nothing super gory or jumping out at you it is all like the whole way through you're just waiting for something to happen and that in itself just sort of like unsettles you and that's a bit like the stories as well when you read them is that you know that something's going to happen you just don't know when (laughs) Yeah, the horrors and the anticipation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a hard craft to master. And M.R. James was definitely yeah. one of the best at that. What I have read and what I have watched, I enjoy. There you go. He is quite wordy, though. So That's, where, that's where I only read a couple. <laughs> yeah, warning to the wise. Again, he was a Victorian man. He used lots of words. <laughs> yeah, he could give Victor Hugo a run for his money. Oh, he absolutely could, honestly. Yeah. Get the two of them in a room together. They can oh. have a word off. They'd talk to each other to death. <laughs> um. Literally. <laughs> but anyway, over to you, my friend. And I hear we're going Thank down you. a little true crime lane this evening. A wee true crime lane, taking it back to my one true love. Murder. It has been a while. And uh, it has been a while since I've done murder. Um... Not you personally, like. Not me personally. No, no, no. I that hope, was quite recent. Unless there's something you want that to tell week. me. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm keeping it quite regular with that. At least. Oh, right. Okay. Bi-weekly. Um, but yes, this is somebody else's murder. Uh, so Archibald Thomas Hall, mm-hmm. aka Roy Fontaine, was born in Glasgow on the 17th of June, 1924. At the young age of 15, he ventured into a career of petty crime via a charity-based scam involving two Red Cross collection tins. The tins con- One tin contained small change, and that was a tin he would give to the Red Cross, and mm-hmm. the other one was for any paper money donations. This second tin would never be seen by the Red Cross. He would keep it for Big Archie himself. He wanted all wow. that money for his own gains. After realising that he was bisexual, he infiltrated the gay scene in London where he moved on the strength of his prior criminal profits. So the money he made from this Red Cross scam afforded Mm -hmm. him a place in London. Well, He served his first jail sentence after attempting to sell some jewellery he had stolen in Scotland, but he got caught out. During his stint behind bars, he learned more about etiquette and the aristocracy, whilst also 
dulling his Scottish accent with elocution lessons and swatting up on antiques. So, first of all, don't dull your Scottish accent. Keep that Don't going. do that. Don't be doing don't that. Don't do that. What a silly thing to do. Um, and upon his release, he adopted the name Roy Fontaine, which was a homage to actress Joan Fontaine, of whom he was particularly fond. Moving on to better things, he graduated to confidence tricks and became a consummate actor, often posing as a member of the aristocracy, aristocracy or a wealthy American. He's got range. Paul, he does. He, Meryl, would have been quaking. Meryl. <laughs> also, quaking. side note, can we talk about Meryl Streep being in the third season of Only Murders in the Building? I cannot wait. I'm I so buzzed. <laughs> So it's excited. gonna be so good. Well, I just love that she she'll do whatever she wants. Oh, I love that. So here for it. Hall was able to swindle vast sums of cash as he was able to gain entry to some of the oldest and grandest houses in the country under his new fancy panty persona. Yeah. Working as a butler, he was able to mingle with the rich and famous, including composer Ivor Novello. Lord Mountbatten and playwright Terence Rattigan. I love As Terence Rattigan. He well, here Big Archie was just mingling about. Was knocking about with him. Oh, he's done some yeah. classics. Highly recommend. Yes, 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 yes. As his confidence continued to grow under his new identity, Hall's ability to switch up who he wanted people to perceive him as became much easier. He could switch it on and off, just like Meryl. On one occasion, he managed to convince others that he was a sheik named Mutlak Medina by wearing an Arabian headdress. Hall was able to make off with $300,000 worth of jewellery after luring jewellers into his hotel room. Now, one thing I will say is I don't know why this article said $300,000 because we are in the UK just now in this story. But for some reason, it's marked as dollars. So I don't know if... It was a, an American buyer. Mm-hmm. Don't know. Whatever happened, it's in dollars. Okay. He eventually, but it's probably at that time, maybe £200,000, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe. Yeah. He eventually received 10 years in prison in 1964 for his jewel snaffling activities. Shortly after his, concar- his incarceration, he escaped from Blundeston Prison in Suffolk only to be recaptured in 1966, and for this he received an additional five years on top of the original ten. In 1972 he was paroled, and it was during this time while at Preston that he met Mary Coggle, an Irish woman who became his lover. Oh. Yes. In between his periodic spells in prison, he continued working as a butler to the rich and famous. By the end of 1973, he was back in prison and stayed there until 1977. When Hall was released from prison, he returned to the homeland. There we go. (laughs) We're back. We're back. Here he began working as a butler for Margaret Hudson, a dowager who lived at Kirkleton House in Dumfriesshire. Hall initially had ideas to steal her valuables, but he never carried them out because he realised he both enjoyed his job and his employer too much. He thought, this is the one I've found my home. Yeah, there you go. 
Whilst living there, he was visited by one of his prison acquaintances, David Wright, who started to do various odd jobs around the house. And while in prison, they were known to do odd jobs for each other, if you know what I mean. Okay. A wee wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Odd okay. jobs. I get your drift. While you get my drift. While Wright was staying with Hall, some of Lady Butler's silver and a ring vanished. This annoyed Archie, as he liked this job and had decided that he would go straight in this life. He didn't want to be a criminal no more. Good for him. But when he found out that Wright's girlfriend was now in possession of the ring, he persuaded her to return it. And now Wright was the one who was upset. So one night, whilst sleeping like a little angel, Archie was suddenly awoken by a loud bang. Archie saw Wright standing next to his bed, pointing a rifle at him. The bullet, fortunately, had struck the headboard just above his head. And it was clear to Archie that Wright had taken advantage of the fact that Lady Lady Hudson was away and had consumed some of her bottles of champagne and thought, what better time than to bump off my pal? Exactly. That's what alcohol does to you kids. That's it. This is why I stay clear, because I would immediately commit homicide. (laughs) Wright jabbed the gun at Archie, catching him in the face with the barrel, which reminded him of some of their evenings together in prison. Again, if you catch my drift. (laughs) I wrote this story so long ago that when I proofed this before recording tonight, I had a good chuckle. I thought I've put some really good wee jokes in there. And so even I was able to enjoy it. Dear. Wow. After quite some time, Archie eventually managed to calm him down and get him to go to bed. So everything That's was fine. good. The next day, Archie and Wright went out hunting rabbits. After they had fired at several rabbits and Archie was sure that Wright's gun was empty, he shot him in the head, killing him instantly. He dug a rough grave in the bed of a stream and buried the body. A little while later, Lady Lady Hudson was informed by the police about Archie's criminal history and she dismissed him. Oh, no. But nobody knows about Steve. Steve? Steve? (laughs) Who's Steve? What was his name? (laughs) David. David. I was thinking Steve right in the afternoon. (laughs) Steve right in the afternoon. (laughs) Anyway, different Mr. Wright. Oh, wow. (laughs) Moving down to London in November 1977, he once more got a position as butler, this time to 82-year-old Walter Travers Scott Elliot and his wife Dorothy. It didn't take Archie long to notice that his new home was full of priceless antiques and he decided that this was going to be the big one. After this, he would retire for good. He would never commit crimes and he would never butler again. There we go. The Scott Elliots were very wealthy, with many bank accounts around the world, and the owners of several houses in Britain. Not long after moving to London, Archie spotted his gal from before, Mary Coggle, in a pub. Yeah, thought, here's an old flame, let's go and chat to it. She was (coughs) chatting to a man named Michael Kitto. Archie found that they had quite a lot in common, as Kitto also had a history of petty crime. The three of them chatted and decided to burgle the house of the Scott Elliots, and it seemed odd to me that this is the kind of thing that you chat about to a stranger in a pub, but whatever. 
whatever. I was going to say that. What, what, what a get-together. What a bonding experience for all of them. It's the same as when people who decide to murder together find each other. Because you'd think one yeah. person would go, I fancy committing a murder, and the other person would say, you're mad. And call yeah. it not Weird. not like actually I, I i'm with you there i understand why count me in <laughs> yeah don't quite get very it. strange yeah anyways back to the burglary mm-hmm. mrs scott elliott had to go into a nursing home for a few days and on the evening of the 8th of december archie took the opportunity to show kitto around the scott elliott's house unbeknownst mm-hmm. to him mrs scott elliott had returned from the home earlier that day. Oh no. When he opened the door to the Scott Elliott's bedroom, he expected to see the old man fast asleep, but he was confronted by Mrs. Scott Elliott, who wanted to know what he was doing there with a stranger. Panicking, they both grabbed her and used a pillow to suffocate her. They decided to try and make it look like an accident, so started putting her into bed, which is when her husband woke up. Archie explained to him that his wife had had a nightmare and that he should just go back to sleep. And he did. (laughs) Wild. Oh, wow. (laughs) The next day, Mr. Scott Elliott went to his club for lunch and Archie, Kitto and Coggle discussed what to do next. They thought that if they kept the old man sedated with his normal quota of pills then Mary might be able to successfully impersonate his wife for a little while. The next problem they had to decide was what to do with the body. They put the body into the boot of the car and that evening took Mr Scott Elliot to a cottage in Cumberland with Archie that Archie had rented. Mary sat in the back seat with Mr Scott Elliot wearing a wig and Dorothy's fur coat and they all drove north. And Mr... Scott Elliot was none the wiser. Oh my god. This is like giving black comedy vibes. I know it shouldn't be funny because it's true. A hundred percent. But this is just this, getting or really, even really like, absurd. It's like a black mirror episode or something. Something Virtually. just kinda kooky, but also dark. Honestly, very strange. It's the way they're just like, I've got an idea, you just pretend to be the dead lady. And it's the fact that the husband, the husband's just like, Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. It's I just like it. that must that must be her. That's her, smells like her fur coat. Smells like damp dogs. <laughs> the next day, they buried Mrs. Scott Elliot's body by a lonely roadside near Loch Ern. Having got rid of the body, they then drove back to the cottage and left Mr. Scott Elliot there with Mary Coggle, still posing as his wife, while they both returned to London and ransacked the house. They went back and picked up Mr. Scott Elliot and Mary Coggle and continued their drive north. On the afternoon of the 14th of December, near Glen Affric, Archie and Kitto decided it was time to get rid of the old man. So they attempted to strangle him. Perhaps fear gave him added strength, but he fought back with unexpected force. With what felt like no other option, they chose to use a spade to beat him to death, and then using the same spade, they buried his body in a shallow grave. So that's all very horrific. But uh-huh. also, let's just remind ourselves, it was the 8th of January, the 8th of December, when they killed Mrs. Scott Elliot. Uh-huh. So this man has been around a woman pretending to be his wife for almost a week. That's wild. And he just didn't clock on I just on never clocked fact. it. No. 
crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. During the next day, things were tense between Archie and Mary. She wanted to keep Dorothy's mink coat, but Archie wanted to get rid of the evidence. When they got back to the cottage, the row erupted into violence. Archie struck Mary, knocking her to the ground with a poker, and put a plastic bag over her head and suffocated her. Later that night, Archie and Kitto drove the Carlisle to Glasgow Road and dumped her body in a stream under a bridge. And she was discovered on Christmas Day 1977 by a shepherd, who I can only imagine was anticipating some kind of baby king and not the body of a woman. But and not the body of a that's Yeah, that's quite a different thing to find. It's a very different thing, yeah. Poor shepherd. <laughs> poor Mary. <laughs> poor Mary. Poor, poor mink. Poor minks getting turned into coats. Exactly. Anywho. The pair spent a quiet Christmas with Archie's family, but the end of the festive season, after the end of the festive season, Hall and Kittle returned to their Cumberland hideout, this time with Archie's half-brother, Donald. Much like his brother, he also had a criminal record for burglary, but had the additional charge of child molestation. Archie hated him for this and thought of him as a pervert, which, to be fair, is quite right. It's true, yes. Yeah, it's true. It's literally, it's literally what he is, Archie. Literally. Yep. When Donald started to ask too many questions about their newfound wealth, Archie decided he had to go. He was rendered oh, unconscious with chloroform and drowned in the bath. Ah, chloroform. Are we linked to last week? No, last week. Yeah, last, last year. week. Come on now. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the next day on the 15th of January 1978 they once again drove north looking for somewhere suitable to dispose of the body it had been snowing and the ground was frozen so they decided to spend the night at the Blenheim House Hotel in North Berwick ah there you go <laughs> we're home almost we're, we're not quite home but we're not far not from far home. the hotel proprietor that's a hard word the hotel proprietor was suspicious about his two new guests and telephoned the local police and asked them to check out their car registration. Archie, thinking he was being a clever clogs, had fitted false plates to the car, but this was unfortunately his downfall. Oh. The police had made a connection between Hall's car and the registration number of a vehicle noted by a suspicious antiques dealer in Newcastle upon Tyne, to whom two men had offered silver and china at a price well below its true value. The police traced the car to the Scott Elliott's address in London and found the apartment robbed of many valuables and spattered with blood. This also linked with the mur- this also linked with the murder of Coggles, whose body had already been found and who had previously been registered as a housekeeper for the Scott Elliots. It's all connecting. It is it's all, all connecting. The police had evidence that three men, including a drugged Mr. Scott Elliot and a woman, had stayed at a Scottish hotel for one night, but the following night only two men returned. Hall and Quito, obviously. They were taken back to the police station. Here Archie asked to go to the toilet and escaped out of the window but his freedom was short-lived and he was picked up later in a taxi on his way to Dunbar. <laughs> it's his, the wildest story you've ever heard. This is crazy! Hall tried and failed suicide while in custody before revealing the whereabouts of three buried victims. 
In deep snow and bitter temperatures and with the media watching, police teams dug up the bodies of David Wright and Walter and Dorothy Scott Elliott. So they charged Hall and Quito with five murders. Hall was convicted at courts in London and Edinburgh of four murders and the murder of Mrs Scott Elliott was ordered to lie on file. And he was sentenced to life imprisonment. I don't really know why her, her murder was left yeah. out of it. But I couldn't find an explanation for that. Okay. In Scotland, it was recommended that he served a minimum of 15 years, which is nothing. A minimum? A minimum. Or minimum, okay. Yeah, which is not so bad. But still, minimum 15 years is nothing. No. And yeah. in England, the judge, the judge, the judge handed, ha, oh, wow, wow. Wow. And in okay. England, the judge handed down a recommendation that he never be released. I prefer that one. I prefer that too. Yep. Quito was given life imprisonment for three murders with no recommended minimum in Scotland and a 15-year minimum in England. Police said in evidence that Quito was, in a perverted way, fortunate to be able to go to trial as Hall was planning to kill him too. (laughs) (laughs) So that's good. Successive home secretaries put Hall on the list of dangerous prisoners who should serve a whole life tariff while unlike some criminals on the list, while unlike some criminals on criminals on the list, did not alter Hall's prison status at all, as it reciprocated the tariff set by one of the judges. When politically set tariffs were declared illegal by the law lords and the European Court of Human Rights, Hall's status as a prisoner unlikely to be released never changed despite being the oldest prisoner on the published list. On the published list. <laughs> Once again, the inflection was incorrect. There we go. In 1995, the Observer newspaper published a letter from Hall in which he requested the right to die. He had made numerous sev- suicide attempts, all of which were unsuccessful. Hall published his autobiography, A Perfect Gentleman, in 1999. But he died of a stroke in Kingston Prison, Portsmouth, in 2002 at the age of 78. By this date, he was one of the oldest of more than 70,000 prisoners in British prisons and the oldest to be serving a whole life tariff. And that's the story of Butler Archibald Hall. Well, that is quite the crazy tale. Twists. I, I did honestly there were points in that I did not know where this was going next <laughs> I've read that story about three or four times and I still got a surprise like honestly I think it's when we got to the impersonating of the dead wife that I was just a bit like what <laughs> yeah I mean I suppose the perk of trying to victimise a, a person who's 82 in the 70s is that they were maybe not entirely compass mentis and no, they were able to take true. advantage of that a little bit Yes. Um, and that's a shame. But, um, I mean, they worked it in their favour. Not that I'm commending him at all. I'm not saying no. well done. Yeah, I, there's just a lot of moments in the story where things shouldn't have worked out the way they did. Yeah, absolutely. But just the Jammy Dodgers themselves got, were able to make things work. Exactly. It's also the fact as well that they managed to catch him in a very convoluted roundabout way as well. Yes, it's like, oh, Mary Coggle, she's, she was a woman and there was a woman in that hotel. She's now not there. 
So maybe that's the housekeeper. And it was also that whole housekeeper thing was weird. Yeah. And um, the registration plate business was all very wild as well because they must have mm-hmm. been able to track that the car had been seen in Newcastle, or that antiques dealer must have re- remembered the Reggie plate. I don't know. Yeah, that's all. It's just yeah. It's also just him turning around and shooting his pal in the face. You're just a bit like, mm, what was the need? Well, he tried to shoot him first, but because of the shampers, he didn't, he didn't aim That's right. That's true. But like, he didn't. So we should have given him a, a leave on that. Yeah, so to actually shoot him in the head is quite a harsh punishment. <laughs> Why not in the kneecap or something? Yeah, just shoot him in the shoot him with a water pistol and say if you do that again this isn't going to be a water pistol yeah exactly a wee threat a wee warning shot that's all you need but just yeah just shoot him in the face is just a bit bit harsh come on now but um but but then i suppose they were out yeah they were out rabbit hunting they wouldn't have gone rabbit hunting with a water pistol no, I can see that being less effective. Although yeah. I would probably condone that one because I do not condone the shooting of the animals. Nor do I. Nor do I. No, no, no. Um, we don't. I do don't that. approve of fur fur coats either. No, not not that too. No. 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 So, uh, just a big story of baddies. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yep. So the Pride of Glasgow, Archibald Hall. As always, please pop along to our Instagram and our Facebook. Give us likes and follows there. We post all of our corresponding photos up there every week and it just gives you a nice little visual to go along with the story, along with our Magic Hat Mondays where you can give your responses to our questions, our We Love a Link Wednesdays where we join links between different stories that we've told, and of course, Fun Fact Friday where you will learn some kind of fun Scottish fact. If you happen to have a question for the magical hat, if you either email us or messages it over, it will be written down on a little sheet of paper, folded up and go straight into the hat where it may feature on future episodes. Also, if you happen to own an Apple device, if you could head on over to that little purple logo of Apple Podcasts and leave us a little review, it would be much appreciated and helps us in the massive podcast algorithm of the world. And thank you for listening to A Wee Bit Gothic. Was that gothic? A wee bit. No, someone's wee dug. Okay, there we go. That should come through in a second. I am recording a podcast. Oh, there's a lot of sneezing there. Good Lord. That's like my cat. You're not wrong. If Matt does more than five, I, I tell him he's attention seeking. <laughs> Hannah just said that was a lot of sneezes. <sighs> Mind you, I did quite a fair few in bed last night. I think it was only three. <laughs> but they, well, my sneezes are violent. They, they come up about a, they a are quite nine evil. on the Richter scale. Yeah, yeah, they are quite scary. I have jumped. I don't know if the Richter scale. I don't know if the Richter scale is the right thing. Nor do I think nine is a measurement on the Richter scale. (laughs) But just a disclosure. Nine is nine big. Oh my goodness! Ten or twelve. Oh, so I I just about took out the whole of Japan.
Um, okay. 